In this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the shadier side of reselling, including price fixing, price gouging, good old-fashioned shoplifting, and some tax evasion. What is up, Galaxians? Welcome to another edition of the Galaxy CDs, Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. If this is your first time here, my name is Ryan, and I am a full-time reseller, part-time YouTuber, and podcaster, bringing you all of the reselling news every Wednesday morning live on YouTube, and of course by podcast or replay or however you want to consume it. It is out there for you. Thanks for stopping by the show. Uh, For those of you who are in the live this morning, Uh, There was a lot of talk last week about the new backdrop here and that folks wanted to see Josie the cat on there. And I can't I can't quite get there, but I will direct your attention if you're watching on YouTube to the logo in the upper right hand corner of the screen. And voila, Josie the cat (laughs) Uh, will be overseeing the proceedings today from the space traditionally held by the logo. So uh, you can thank me in the comments. (laughs) Anyway, uh, today's show is full of reselling news. We've got updates from, gosh, Etsy, Amazon, eBay, and more. Uh, Do not have a what sold recap. I'll just get that out of the way right now. Last week was actually pretty good here at the Galaxy. If you follow me over on Instagram at Galaxy CDs Rocks, I put up a post on Saturday that I had had 89 transactions last week. The biggest of those was $19.99. So all in, it was a pretty good week, but there's just nothing particularly special. It was a week full of bread and butter stuff. So this week's show is just going to be about the news. Uh, So let's get that kicked off. News Updates. All right, so we're going to start off with uh, a site that I frankly had never heard of, but online marketplace Artfire has closed, uh, effective apparently immediately blaming regulation uh, and complexity. They say in operating a online marketplace, a reader who contacted e-commerce bytes, and I will, of course, as always, link to all of these articles in the show notes and the video description below, said that the closure came as a surprise Although the marketplace had published a notice in December that it would be closing at the end of the year, a message on the Artfire website this week states in part Artfire was launched in 2008 and was operated by the original owners and team until December of 2021. Changes in regulations and the increasing complexity of operating an online marketplace made the continued operation more challenging in the final years. And the members of the founding team moved on to new projects, which I can't imagine will be any less regulated or complicated, but there you go. Uh, Artfire apparently was similar to Etsy, though obviously much, much smaller. Um, I'm in the business and I've never heard of it. So uh, it allowed the sale of handmade and vintage goods, fine art, digital crafts, and craft supplies. Although if you scroll down in this article... And read the comments, you'll see that there was a guy there who got scammed trying to buy an air conditioner on that site. Uh, An air conditioner on that site would have been a big red flag for me (laughs) Uh, that it didn't belong there. But nonetheless, so sad to see. But I'd be curious to see, obviously, the big platforms, eBay, Amazon, Etsy, publicly traded. They're not going anywhere. But are there smaller sites that any of you who might be watching or listening use that you would have any concerns about? surviving in the new kind of reselling and online climate. I'd be very curious to hear that. If you're here live this morning, you can leave it in the chat, which we will dip into here from time to time. If you're watching the replay, of course, you can leave a comment. Or if you're listening to the podcast, you can click the link in the show notes below to leave me a voice message, which I may play in a future episode. Uh, Side note, I've yet to receive a single voice message in 146 episodes. (laughs) Uh, So be the first. Uh, Be a trendsetter. Send me a voice message. Uh, or you can, of course, email me at galaxycds at gmail.com. So let's move on. Uh, this was interesting. If you are in the sports card game, Fanatics gobbled up Tops. Tops is a historic, long-running seller of and producer of sports cards. 
And this article also on e-commerce bites questions, uh, will this produce heartburn for sports retailers and even eBay? As Fanatics gobbles up tops, does it spell heartburn for sports retailers? CNBC has reported that the Fanatics wants to sell trading cards directly to consumers. For example, they say, should collectors purchase a trading card, they'll be able to insure the asset, grade, store, and even put cards on a marketplace to sell or trade through Fanatics. Fanatics Trading Cards was launched last year after the company ex, uh, secured exclusive long-term trading cards rights from several of the leading pro sports leagues and players associations, including baseball and the Baseball Players Association, the NBA and their Players Association, and the NFLPA. So that is huge, from not having a sports card division at all to capturing essentially five of the six of the major organizations is pretty remarkable. The addition of Tops, they say, which also has rights to Major League Soccer, Formula One, my personal favorite, uh, UEFA and the Bundesliga uh, significantly in accelerates the build out of the Fanatics trading card business as the company adds world-class expertise, infrastructure, and an iconic brand and a broad range of capabilities from the industry leader. More importantly, they say it jumpstarts their trading card business, their rights to design, manufacture, and distribute trading cards, which begins immediately because Topps owns MLB rights instead of the original combined start date of 2026. So they're going to be four years ahead of the game in this thing. The acquisition comes despite a federal antitrust lawsuit last month from a merchandiser and consumer against Fanatics and the NFL, which has a stake in Fanatics. If you watch NFL, you'll know they're the authorized reseller of NFL merchandise, quote, claiming they've conspired to monopolize NFL product sales through Amazon.com, Inc.'s third-party marketplace. It is possible that with Fanatics entering the direct-to-consumer trading card field, eBay and its third-party sellers could be impacted. eBay has been pouring, as we've talked about on this show previously, resources into that category as part of its much-discussed vertical strategy. So if you are a card seller, uh, A, were you aware of this? And B, does it fill you with dread? What's your, what are your thoughts on this? I know the sports card game is big, big money. So uh, jumping into the chat here real quick. A lot of good mornings. TRB Collectibles. Tom says, yes, she made it onto the show. Speaking, of course, of Josie the cat. So (laughs) uh, nice job with a Josie loco. She should be overseeing it. And most times she is. She is if I don't keep her out of the room where I'm at, she is there observing. When I ride my uh, exercise bike, she is literally sitting at the base of the pedals looking up at me while I ride for an hour or so. <laughs> um, TRB Collectibles, Michael Eisner, the former CEO of the Walt Disney Company and was the CEO of Tops, was absolutely doing extremely well, but also with digital cards, so I can see why they wouldn't want to buy it. Yeah, plus, obviously... Like I said, it gives them an absolute jump start. They were going to have to wait four years for some of these licensing rights to go into place. And now, at least in the case of baseball, it happens essentially immediately, which is good for them. Amazon has made some uh, updates to their uh, CSBA orders. Amazon told sellers on Friday that it had launched a new program called Safe-T for their customer service by Amazon for orders on Amazon.com. The program lets sellers claim reimbursement for losses incurred to CSBA issues in accordance with the program policies. Amazon went on to explain, you can request reimbursement when a customer has been refunded by Amazon and you believe that you should not be responsible for the charge. For example, the return is not received in original condition. Or maybe Amazon let them keep it, like we talked about in last week's episode. If you didn't catch that, go back and listen to that, where we had a discussion about the returnless return phenomenon that Amazon is sort of pioneering. Your request will be assessed, and any reimbursement decision will be made in accordance with our customer service by Amazon refund reimbursement policy. Some sellers reacting to the announcement felt vindicated for expressing cynicism when the CSBA program launched last year. As e-commerce bites had reported, some sellers feared Amazon would be too customer-centric in how they handled those customer inquiries. They have always been that way. Uh, eBay is very much notorious for being the same way. It's all very customer-focused. To paraphrase, a seller, Amazon says they might refund sellers if 
Amazon CSBA refunds a buyer for a return not received in the original condition. For example, if a buyer returns an item that can't be resold, the seller might be out of luck if the rep refunded the buyer anyway. The conversation then turned, of course, to sellers' helplessness in the face of buyer fraud, and some said that they felt, as we just discussed, that Amazon has enabled. One seller said that despite Amazon acknowledging that sleeping bags cannot be returned, it refunds buyers who do so. So if you sell over on Amazon and use that program, uh, what do you think of it? That is a that is a paid program. You have to pay to participate in kind of offshoring, if you will, your customer service to Amazon directly. If you're a big seller, it's probably worth the expense to not be dealing with that stuff and allowing Amazon to do so. Only to the point, of course, where they are refunding customers with your money <laughs> uh, for things that should not be returned. Another, this is an interesting article. It really probably doesn't have anything to do with normal resellers because this benefits Amazon pretty much specifically. But they have actually hired a physicist to help them reduce their package weight. Reducing the packaging of an order can save in materials and in shipping costs, and at Amazon's massive scale, of course, saving even a penny or two per package adds up to big bucks. But it appears, according to this article, that the retail giant is going well beyond pennies. It has used sophisticated technology that has reduced per-shipment packaging weight by 36% over the past six years. It has eliminated over a million tons of packaging. It says is the equivalent to over 2 billion shipping boxes. Amazon has enlisted the help of a physicist to help reduce packaging. Matthew Bales heads up a machine learning program within Amazon's customer packaging experience team. In a blog post they published this week, he commented when he started in 2017, they were doing a lot of physical testing of products, but, quote, that was not a scalable mechanism that could assess hundreds of millions of products to identify the optimal packaging type for each product. Statistical tests were the first piece, but they are essentially only useful, he said, when products have already been shipped in more than one package type. We wanted the capability to predict how a product would fare in a less protective, lighter, and more sustainable package type. And once you're in that predictive space, he said, you need machine learning. Amazon's team knew that the product images they have on their site were not going to be helpful when selecting packaging. They say, for instance, a multi-pack of LED light bulbs may be illustrated by the picture of a single unpacked bulb, which would suggest that it is very fragile, but the multi-pack they note, is in fact safely packaged by the vendor and doesn't really require additional packaging. It is best shipped in its own container. So the team used Amazon's internal image data. When products are delivered to fulfillment centers, many are sent down a conveyor belt through a special computer vision tunnel. Man, this is like science fiction. <laughs> Uh, that is equipped with cameras that capture images of the products from multiple angles. These tunnels are used for many things, including ascertaining product dimensions and spotting defects. So I have noticed over the last probably year that the massive oversized boxes that you used to get from Amazon that might have one teeny tiny item in it that was surrounded by bubble wrap or whatever is no longer happening. I'm getting packages that are much more scaled to the item and have a lot less internal protective protective padding padding if you will and this obviously seems to be something coming from this program so really interesting um and again amazon squeezing sellers <laughs> in their third-party program on one side while saving potentially millions or even more on the other end USPS, uh, they are very happy with their own performance over the holidays. We're not going to go into that again, but they now are up to over 2,200 post offices that offer a self-scanning kiosk. Uh, for online sellers dropping off prepaid packages, it may help you save time standing in line and give them more confidence that their packages were actually scanned in a timely manner. The post office says the goal of the self-service kiosk program is to provide customers with a convenient self-service alternative to the full-service counter. These place simple transactions with debit or credit cards in control of the customers and allow our retail professionals to use their skills to assist customers with more complicated mailing needs. They are located where they can yield the most benefits for customers, and if the postal service finds that they are not meeting that requirement, they are removed and deployed elsewhere. 
sellers commenting on this new scanning capability overall were pleased. One said now if they would just make that same scanner be able to scan the scan sheets for bulk drop-offs, it would be great. It's impossible to sit there and scan 700 plus packages a day at a time. Uh, I know a lot of sellers, <laughs> even the post office, I've commented on this before, depending on the worker that you get, they may not even know how to use that bulk acceptance sheet because it does not take actually the same scan as a regular package. It's another line on their computer. So it is, it's a, it's a complicated process. Uh, one thing to note, I don't believe the scan, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. The scan at the kiosk does not count as an actual acceptance scan, either by the post office or by the selling platforms. Only when the item is actually scanned by the post office workers does that count. If you use the bulk acceptance sheet, I know at least eBay counts that as having been accepted in terms of your handling time for business. But uh, in terms of USPS, even their own internal shipping metrics, two-day priority mail, is only activated when the individual package is actually scanned by someone at the post office. This kiosk does not count for that. Uh, As one skeptical writer wrote in, I was informed by USPS staff that USPS insurance also requires that the item be physically scanned by the clerk for it to be eligible for a claim. Since there's nothing stopping someone from scanning an item in that APC and then not putting it in the bin, their insurance will not cover items lacking that hard acceptance scan. So if you use this program, be aware that it is obviously very convenient, but it does leave you with some potential downsides. Going back into the chat real quick, TRB Collectibles, speaking of packaging, you mentioned last week, use a couple of different bubble mailers to ship your books. In a future episode, could you go over which ones you order and how you pack different books? Yes, I will do that. I actually have, I think, in my, if you go on my YouTube to the shorts segment, I think I have a quick video on how I packed just one individual hardcover book. So you might go check that out. But uh, yes, I will do some sort of quick video about the, the packaging materials that I use rebel junk says we have the scanner, but the bin we put the packages in is always full. Yeah. And that's the other thing. They take that as an opportunity to not have to do (laughs) uh, some extra work at the post office. There's a bin at my office that you can drop stuff into. It doesn't have, I don't have a scanning kiosk at my local post office, but they have a bin sitting out in the lobby where you can just dump packages that they will get to later. I, Call me a skeptic. I don't trust any of that. I take my scan sheet in and I wait in line and I get that thing scanned. So I have a receipt that I dropped off at least the scan sheet and the packages that were attached to it. So uh, let us know what you do with yours. But that's USPS has enough issues. I don't want to give them too much rope. (laughs) Uh, Etsy, we got some good news this week from Etsy. So I I had several people that commented last week or reached out to me on Instagram that, man, they're happy they don't sell on Etsy. So (laughs) uh, let's let's change the tone a little bit on this. Etsy has introduced a new payment report that breaks down your seller fees. So good on them. A new year brings new Etsy payment reports for sellers. They said the improved financial summaries make it easier for you to understand your finances. And it also added a tool tips and descriptors for all fees to make it easier for sellers to understand what Etsy is charging and why. They say we have reworked how we summarize and present your finances to make it easier for you to understand and use information about your sales, fees, and profit margins, Etsy explained. We believe that these tangible changes can help you review not just your sales, but also effectively plan your shop's future. These summaries are now grouped into four sections, sales, fees, marketing, and shipping. They also noted it is important to note that sales tax or VAT, value-added tax, over in the EU will appear in the respective sections within your summary. And wisely one of the first things I will say, Etsy has probably done right. (laughs) Uh, In the year I have been covering Etsy extensively, these changes only apply to 2022 reporting, not 2021. We know that each seller has their own unique workflows for managing finances. We didn't want to disrupt how past data is presented and potentially interfere with these workflows. 
After careful consideration, they decided to roll out these new seller payment account updates on January 1st so that you can use your existing workflow for 2021 finances and then focus on acclimating to the new workflow if needed starting in 2022. So awesome. You're getting ready to do your taxes for last fiscal year. You don't have to learn and adapt to an entirely new system in order to prepare your information. So fantastic decision by Etsy. They broke down the revenue numbers thusly. The revenue in your shop stats includes all your sales minus any discounts you provided to buyers. It does not factor in selling fees, shipping costs, or orders that you fully refund and canceled. There is a link there on their site where you can go to learn more. Net profit is the sum of your summary activity, which does include total sales, fees, marketing, and shipping costs for the selected time period. Sellers can find the net number on their payment account. There is a link to the Etsy seller handbook on this article. Remember also, obviously, these net numbers do not, they're not the be-all, end-all. You've got other expenses that are part of your net profit on an item, your shipping packaging costs, what it costs you for the bubble mailer or the boxes or whatever. So this gives you a good idea if, at least at first blush, your net profit is good, but it's not necessarily the end of the equation. Going back here to the chat real quick, TRB Collectibles. So for the entirety of 2021, I did not go to the post office once. I sent everything in via the USPS, and I did not have any problems whatsoever. Shipped over a 1,000 packages. So, yeah, I I have a hard enough time at my house actually getting my mail. <laughs> Sometimes I'll go four or five days for some reason and not get any mail. So I don't schedule for USPS pickups. Plus, I'm doing... Man, sometimes four or five hundred in a month, and I just, I, I personally don't want to trust the carrier to have to deal with all that. I mean, sometimes even for me, it's two or three IKEA bags full on a Monday. So, I and the post office for me, fortunately, is only half a mile from my house. So I always just go ahead and go over there. But yeah, if you use the USPS pickup, how has your experience been with it? I know that I've got several viewers and listeners who do that and have had good success. Last week, we talked about using Instagram to promote your stores. This week, there is an article that says 10% of Etsy sellers are using TikTok to promote their listings. This article, also on e-commerce bites, says, do you think TikTok is a good way to promote marketplace listings? It seems sellers are in disagreement about the value of the social media video platform, but one online marketplace has no reservations. Etsy apparently is actively encouraging its sellers to learn more about it. It surveyed their sellers to see how many were using TikTok to promote their business, and it found only 1 in 10 respondents were currently using the platform. I, like e-commerce bites in this article, think 10% is probably a pretty big number. Um, in promoting a webinar to educate sellers on using TikTok, Etsy referred to it as a uniquely powerful marketing channel for small businesses. So again, like last week, let me know, are you using TikTok to promote your business to promote individual listings or items that you have, or are you using it to cross promote your other media adventures? If you have a YouTube channel or a podcast, I, for my part, am actually not on TikTok at all. Um, I guess I, I appreciate what TikTok is, and I have some friends and family that just absolutely love it. They're on it all the time, but maybe I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, I don't use it so. Moving on to eBay. Uh, interesting article. Should eBay rewrite your listing titles in search results? The article starts off, how would you feel if eBay rewrote the titles of your listings when displaying them in the search results? We haven't heard any reports that eBay yet is doing it, according to this article, but the company did file for a patent describing this concept. They say in that patent filing, it is challenging to present a long description for a product listing on a mobile screen, which is true. Specifically, the screen size of a mobile phone is less than the screen size of a computer, laptop, or desktop, and long titles in a listing may not be displayed fully on a mobile screen. In some cases, displaying a listing or a search result that includes a long description may consume screen space on a mobile device and may impact the user experience for a buyer querying for one or more items. It may also chew up space for a promoted listing. (laughs) 
uh, that eBay is making extra money on. So I don't necessarily think this is a completely selfless endeavor. The other reason they can think of sellers often try to use the title field to optimize for search. In other words, they may be putting lots of keywords to include model numbers in the title. So eBay's search engine will, of course, find the listing. But the result is a title that doesn't necessarily read well or grab a shopper's attention. eBay would, again, use machine learning, of course, to fix this problem. They explained in part the raw titles and user behavior data may be used to train a machine learning model to identify one or more parameters that may be used to refine a raw seller-supplied title to generate a refined title that leads to a desired outcome. I don't, I don't know about all that. Uh, and neither do some other sellers. If sellers are skeptical about eBay's skills in title writing, the feeling is mutual, eBay wrote in their filing. Oftentimes, a seller may input unnecessary or duplicate information when providing a description for an item for sale. It wrote, moreover, some descriptions included by a seller in a listing may unintentionally negatively impact the seller's goal of selling an item at a desired price. The highest price possible, of course. They ask the question in the article, if eBay thinks having a separate title to display results is a good idea, why not allow sellers to create two titles when listing an item, one that's optimized for eBay's search engine and a shorter one that's optimized for shoppers' attention and or mobile devices that would both be displayed in various places in the search results? My personal feeling is there's no way eBay is going to do this. If they already don't think we write titles well enough to fit their system, they're not going to give us another line (laughs) uh, of title information. They're just going to try to compress whatever we put into into whatever they think the most palatable format is. I guess my biggest concern would be that this in some way leads to a reduction of the number of characters that we're allowed to put in the title to try to optimize already for search. Right now, it is, of course, 80. Mercari, for the longest time, was at 40. And it was really difficult. If you've got, again, I sell primarily in media, so you've got artist, title, maybe the publisher or the label. So you have some relevant information that you need to get in there. And sometimes it's difficult to get into 40 characters. eBay seems to be of the mind that they would like these things to be shorter. So I guess be on the lookout for that. I would be really concerned if they cut back on the number of characters that were allowed in the titles. Although I must say, I'm not sure I trust them to accurately shorten my titles either. (laughs) Uh, This was an interesting article. Uh, And again, let me know in the comments or in the chat if you have ever had this happen to you. Most of us have only been on managed payments for a year or less, but there appears to be an issue where sellers are being put on annual payment holds while eBay reviews their account. A seller said eBay placed a hold on their payments for five days while it reviewed the account and was told it's part of eBay's managed payments policy. The seller wrote on an eBay discussion board, quote, once a year, sellers are going to have their accounts reviewed and payouts held until eBay completes a review that may take up to five days. During that time, They say you can list, buy, and sell, but not get payments. I quote, there are no triggers or nothing wrong with your account. This is just the new standard to safeguard our buyers and sellers on eBay. Another seller noted that PayPal had a similar practice, but they froze one transaction, not all transactions, while they did that review. There are many reports of customer service reps, of course, on eBay telling a seller about a policy that may or may not be correct, so we don't know, and this article does not claim to know what is going on, but what is concerning is that eBay did not provide the original poster details about why the account was on hold. It's not clear, according to this article, that they received any notification that their account was even on hold or why they just didn't get their payout that they were expecting. So, uh, again... Let me know if this is something that has happened to you. And I guess be on the lookout for it as you start to approach maybe your one-year anniversary on managed payments. It does seem excessive to hold all of your funds for that amount of time, but I don't know. Uh, We talked about this last week. eBay, uh, a lot of Facebook groups that had eBay in the name had been taken down. eBay says it did not request that. They've done an internal study to find out if someone there had inadvertently sent through some kind of information to Facebook about these groups, and they said 
but they have not. They, on Thursday of last week, published an update informing sellers that it was continuing to work with Facebook on that matter. Our team has been working to understand why these seller groups were removed and, most importantly, to reinstate them. While we continue to investigate investigate the cause of this action, we have confirmed that it was not the result of any official eBay request. We are also pleased to report that groups that shared their complete information with us, eBay, have already been reinstated. So if you know of a Facebook group that remains impacted, please contact us at askcommunity at ebay.com and provide the group name, the URL to the Facebook page that administers the group, the group URL, and any other relevant information. They are, they note, continuing to work with Facebook to improve the checks and balances and to do everything possible to reduce the chance of this happening again. They are also reviewing their social media name and logo usage guidelines to be sure they are clear and easier to follow for all of our seller community. So when you use eBay or Amazon or any of these companies' logos in your YouTube video or in your social media, there are actual requirements as to how and when you can do that. Most people who are using the eBay logo in their groups and that I'm sure are completely unaware that that is the case, but it is in fact the case and that may have inadvertently led to some of these takedowns. Uh, We talked last week about the tax deadline at the time of last week's show. There had not been an announcement on how early you could file taxes that has now been rectified. This year's income tax filing season starts January 24th, which is several weeks earlier than last year, but the IRS does say it's going to be a frustrating one. The 2022 tax season will run from Monday, January 24th, to Monday, April 18th, unless you are in the two states I mentioned last week. I want to say it was Maine and one other that celebrate Patriots Day on the 18th. In those states, it will be the 19th. But brace yourself, they say, for potentially sluggish service as the underfunded, understaffed, and backlogged IRS juggles another filing season. In many areas, we are unable to deliver the amount of service and enforcement that our taxpayers and the tax system deserves and needs. This is a frustrating experience for taxpayers and IRS employees and also for me, said the IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddig. They give an example Telephone customer service for taxpayers or preparers with questions less than 15,000 staffers were available to field more than 240 million calls through the first half of 2021 alone. By May, as taxpayers dealt with the pandemic-related tax provisions, call demand on the individual taxpayer phone lines was 456% above the same point a year previously. The number of disconnects from people trying to call into taxpayer assistance centers was 2,000% higher than the previous year. So big, big problems over at IRS. They note the best way to avoid any delays is to file electronically instead of via paper with direct deposit. It's also crucial that the numbers on the return are accurate to avoid snags and delays. They note that direct deposit refunds accounted for 91% of all refunds issued last year, which was 9% higher than the year before. They also point out they are... sending out important letters on amounts that it paid households last year for child tax credit payments and the third round of stimulus checks, if you got one of those. So be on the lookout for those documents, tax professionals say. They also note that the IRS is still wading through 6 million unprocessed returns from 2020. Uh, errors and, quote, special handling to address discrepancies in the returns are some of the reasons. But there are still 6 million 2020 tax returns that have not been completed. Yikes. That is a huge, huge number. Uh, Flipping Sports Guy says, oh, yeah, that child tax credit thing is going to create a nightmare. Yeah, I've got some friends that qualified for that. You got, I don't know what it was, several hundred dollars, I think, a month in an advanced credit payment for your taxes, but now you've got to take that off your taxes somehow. I don't, I don't fall into that. So I didn't look into it. And as I always say, don't get your tax advice (laughs) Uh, from a guy on YouTube working in his basement. But nonetheless, that is going to be a really complicated situation. And particularly if you are also a reseller and you layer in all of that stuff on top of it, uh, too many people didn't realize that they're not getting that. Yeah. Or what they're supposed to do when they get that, or the fact that it is 
an advance on a credit that you would be receiving on your taxes. So at some point, you've got to take it back off. It's a really complicated system, unfortunately. Uh, TRB Collectible says, do you think at a point where they completely eliminate the paper tax filing? I don't know. I would I would think that was probably a good idea, uh, but I don't know that they'll, in the foreseeable future, obviously looking well down the road, I think everything is probably going to end up electronic, but at the moment, um, I don't know that that would be the case. So moving on to the what we talked about in the intro to the episode, kind of the shadier side of reselling. This first one refers to taxes. As we've talked about on this show, I can't even begin to think how many times with the new 1099K requirements, it has created a deep divide among online sellers, deeply divided over their responsibility to pay taxes on the income generated from selling on sites like eBay, Etsy, and Facebook, and so on, beginning as we've talked about for year 2022. Any entity that processes payments on your behalf must report it to the IRS if your sales reached $600, no matter how many transactions you made. Previously, that threshold was $20,000 and a minimum of 200 transactions. Sellers going into industry discussion boards to complain are met with sympathy from like-minded sellers, but they're also met with a lot of resentment from sellers who have been paying their taxes all along. Sellers who always considered their selling activity to be tax-free are now worried about how they're going to prove they're not making a profit. Some sellers who have been reporting their online selling revenue and paid taxes are unsympathetic and from their comments on these boards clearly resent those who have long failed to pay taxes. They say, rightly, that the law previously required payment processors to issue those 1099Ks after reaching a certain threshold, but that did not mean just because you did not receive one, that you had no obligation to pay taxes on income under that threshold. In some threads, sellers have also called out colleagues who call their business a hobby while simultaneously having thousands of listings for sale. There is a note from the IRS about said hobby sellers. If a taxpayer receives income for an activity that they don't carry out to make a profit, i.e. for a business, the expenses that they pay for that activity are miscellaneous itemized deductions and can no longer be deducted. The taxpayer must still report the income, however, on Schedule 1, Form 1040, Line 21. In other words, if you are a hobby seller, according to this, you must report the revenue, but you can't deduct your expenses. So this gets even more expensive if you try to use the hobby seller out. For those wondering about compliance, The IRS does have a video to help get you started, including advice about how to fill out your form Schedule C. There are, of course, books and articles available, but it is a best practice, as I talked about several times when I do tax issues, to consult with your account, a qualified tax preparer, or a tax attorney when filing your taxes. I am in the group who have always paid my taxes, whether I got the 1099 or not. I've always tracked my income and paid the appropriate tax. Tax evasion may be strong. Some of this is clearly just people who weren't aware that they were supposed to file. Some of it is willful ignorance. Some of it is just outright thievery, where these people essentially are making more profit than you or I, who are filing our taxes, are making on these same items. Does it suck four times a year to pay my estimated quarterly taxes and to write those checks to the city, to the state, and to the federal government. Absolutely. I hate it. (laughs) Uh, I hate, hate, hate sending out those tax payments. But it is my obligation as a business owner and operator and as a citizen of this country who benefits from that tax money being respent in our communities to do so. So, But it limits, if I got to write $8,000 a year or whatever the number is in income tax and FICA and all the rest of that. And another seller that's doing essentially the same amount of business somehow is skirting all of that and not paying taxes because they've stayed under that 20K threshold. They, They are much more profitable than I. They can afford to sell their items for less because they don't have to account for that tax. So I'm, I'm not on board (laughs) Uh, with that program. If you want to do that, um, maybe 
uh, as TRB Collectibles just suggested in the chat, have a garage sale instead. Uh, that is technically, you may still have to, if you if you sell an item for more than you paid for it and you made profit, technically that money would still be taxable. But uh, again, let me know in the comments or in the chat what you think of that. But this is going to be an ongoing conversation probably throughout this year and certainly at the beginning of next year when the tax filing and these 1099Ks go out. Speaking of which, starting on like January 2nd on my managed payments screen on eBay, there was a link that said my 1099K was available, but when I open it, it is still last year's 1099K. So uh, let us know, have you actually gotten access (laughs) yet to your 1099K on any of these sites? Another area that has gotten much, much worse during the pandemic is the outright shoplifting surge across America that is having dangerous and costly consequences, according to WDJT in Milwaukee. Retailers, of course, have always been vulnerable to shoplifting. Most retailers account for a certain amount of it in their budgeting process, but it has gotten significantly more out of control. The emergence of coordinated and organized robberies at high-value stores, even sometimes during shopping hours, has the industry on edge. In November, 14 individuals barged into a Louis Vuitton store in Oak Brook, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, um, while customers were inside and audaciously drove away with $100,000 worth of merchandise. The entire incident was caught on the store's video surveillance. That same month, 18 people broke into a closed Nordstrom store at LA's famous high end, the Grove Shopping Mall, using a sledgehammer and an electric bicycle. I don't, <laughs> not sure about the electric bike, but hey, whatever worked for them, I guess. Uh, they made off several thousand dollars in merchandise. And on Black Friday, the article points out one of the busiest shopping days of the year, as many as 30 people robbed a Best Buy in Minneapolis. The crime typically involves groups of people who are targeting stores that carry higher value items like electronics, designer handbags, or clothing, who then resell the merchandise in secondary marketplaces such as eBay, OfferUp, Facebook Marketplace, or even back into the legitimate supply chain. Many of these stores don't, they don't ask for a receipt when you're doing a return. So you steal it at one store, you take it back to another store, and you get In some cases, even money back, as we've talked about previously, or at worst, a store credit that you can spend on things that you're not trying to steal. It's a a bad, bad setup. There are people who make a living. They note off of stealing and reselling. It is not a one-time opportunistic or a need-based robbery, said Corey Lowe, an expert on retail crime and a research scientist at the Loss Prevention Research Council. The anatomy of these tax... Attacks show they are more aggressive, dangerous, and they're happening more frequently. When I talk to retail loss prevention veterans, the best comparison they come up with is what crime was like in New York City in the 1970s. But even then, it was more street robberies and not brazen retail theft. We've talked to retailers across America who say shoplifting is up to 2% or 3% of their total sales previous to the pandemic it may have ranged from 0.7% to 1%. So it has gone up massively. And that was my experience as a retail general manager. Our targets for shrink, loss, be it theft or internal or just paperwork errors, was generally under 1%, somewhere between a half and three quarters of a percent. We got paid bonuses based on that. If my bonus structure was based on a three quarter of 1% shrink in my store and I was suffering two or 3% loss, um, <laughs> Man, that would be expensive, Uh, not only for the business, but for the individual managers. They note in the article, power tools are so popular with professional shoplifters that Home Depot has launched a line of power tools that won't work until they're activated by being scanned at the checkout. So like a gift card that isn't good until it's scanned, the power tool will not operate until it has been scanned. That is amazing. Some of the most popular items targeted are designer clothing, laundry detergent, designer handbags, allergy medicine, razors, high-end liquor, pain relievers, baby formula, laptops, deodorant, and high-end appliances, according to the National Retail Federation. They note that elsewhere, drugstore chains are actually closing stores in neighborhoods where there's persistent shoplifting. Walgreens recently closed a handful of stores in San Francisco, citing rampant shoplifting. 
if it's eating into, if you're in a business that your net margins are only two or three percent to begin with, and you're losing two or three percent to shrink, you're losing money hand over fist in those stores, and you just can't afford to keep them open. That, of course, leads to a broader community impact where shopping in stores generates sales tax, which in turn provides funding for essential public services in those areas, not to mention the fact that those stores disappearing now makes it more difficult for people who may not have transportation to be able to go and get items that they need. Recurring theft, they say, also spreads fear. They scare away shoppers who normally would spend time browsing in the stores, and they also scare away employees. They note that uh, organized shoplifting sprees were on the rise even before the pandemic, but it has become much easier now. Imagine, they say, think about wearing a mask pre-pandemic. Who would have thought that we would ever have to think about everyone in a liquor store wearing a mask, covering half of their face, and allowing them to remain anonymous? This confluence of other factors have also contributed to the spike in dangerous retail robberies in the last two years. They include, of course, reduced in-store staffing which leads to less customer service and less surveillance and the ease with which the thieves are able to benefit from a lack of regulation on reselling stolen items online. That's the one that should probably get our attention. (laughs) Uh, If they're going to start to crack down on providing some sort of proof of purchase in order to resell an item on some of these sites, if you've got a power tool, for instance, that you would not be allowed to sell unless you could provide a proof of purchase either from a distributor or a manufacturer or even a store uh, that could be problematic for those of us who buy things at estate sales and garage sales they're not giving you a receipt for this item and you try to put it on ebay and suddenly ebay says in order to list this you would have to have a receipt uh that could really get ugly 50 percent of retailers surveyed reported an average dollar value loss of merchandise of at least a thousand dollars in 2020 compared to just 29 percent in 2019 overall organized retail crime costs retailers an average of between 700,000 to one billion dollars in sales depending on the size of the business so thievery and reselling is um, obviously it's not new but it has become a much more significant problem and it is impacting not only the stores and the employees but the customers of those stores and those communities so I'm, I'm sure there are no thieves <laughs> uh, listening to this particular podcast, but man, don't just don't do it. It's no bueno. TRB collectibles. Speaking of stealing, do you ever see anything go missing in your antique booth? How does the security work for that? Uh, I don't know. I'm not actually tracking the inventory closely enough over there to know if something went missing or not. There is very little surveillance in, in any of these antique booths, they've got a handful of employees that might be roaming around at any given time. For my part, I'm only essentially taking things over there that are super low value anyway that I'm just trying to get rid of. Most The most expensive thing I have in my antique booth is like $9.99. Most of the stuff I'm selling over there is a dollar. it's stuff that's just not worth listing on eBay that I feel like I might be able to squeeze a few nickels out of if I can sell it over there. So if it, if I experience even 10% theft, I don't, it's out of my, it's out of my hair. (laughs) Uh, and I'm really not all that concerned about it. So I'm not taking anything of really high value over there. Paulo P welcome. I don't believe I've seen that name before. Thanks for joining Crazy that certain states like L.A. and California do not stop or prosecute shoplifters unless they steal more than $900. Yeah, that is another area where the restrictions, even when I was in retail back in the late 1990s, um, loss prevention staff could not leave the building to stop a shoplifter. So they had to stop them within before they got out the door. Once they were out the door, they were not allowed to chase or pursue or do any of that. So it's if you can get to the door and get past whoever happens to be there, you've got the thing. And now they are, because they don't want to clog up the court system, they're raising the threshold of the amount of money that has to, the value that has to be stolen before it can even be prosecuted, uh, which, of course, does nothing but encourage more of this kind of behavior. 
price fixing. Here's another issue that uh, from time to time rears its ugly head. There were three more Amazon sellers that pleaded guilty to price fixing on Amazon. This article says every seller wants to learn how to get the highest prices for their online sales. But as we have warned previously, this is also on e-commerce bites. The government is watching to make sure sellers don't engage in conduct with each other that it deems anti-competitive and harmful to consumers. In July, the government exposed what it called a conspiracy among Amazon sellers to fix prices of DVDs and Blu-ray discs when it announced that a seller in Tennessee had pleaded guilty. Today, the feds named three other Amazon sellers who also pleaded guilty, one from New Jersey and two from New York. According to the chargers, charges, the sellers had agreed to raise and maintain the prices of DVDs and Blu-ray discs sold in their Amazon Marketplace storefronts. While the government's information against the Tennessee seller details the allegations, it leaves out exactly how these sellers coordinated the prices or set floor prices for each title. Um, this article notes it's hard to believe that online sellers could coordinate prices without using some sort of software. They note that in 2015, the feds charged several Amazon sellers with using an algorithm to fix the prices of movie posters. There's a whole list of what was included in the actual charge. Essentially, these sellers engaged in discussions within the United States, including within this particular district, concerning the prices of DVDs and Blu-rays. They agreed during those discussions to suppress competition by raising and maintaining particular pricing, for DVDs and Blu-rays. They agreed also during those discussions to monitor and exchange pricing with each other. They also agreed to establish a floor price for DVDs and Blu-rays. They monitored those current prices and communicated with the other through the use of interstate wire transmissions, which is where it gets to be a federal crime. That included email, text, and phone. They sold DVDs through Amazon Marketplace in the United States at those collusive and non-competitive prices, and they then accepted, of course, the payments for those. It's also interesting to note, they say, that the government described one of the defendants' affected sales to U.S. customers of DVDs and Blu-rays sold through the Amazon Marketplace as totaling $360,000. So that is a big, big number. They don't know if or how many more sellers may be charged in the case. The Department of Justice Antitrust Division called it a ongoing investigation and said that anyone with information concerning price fixing or other anti-competitive conduct, which I guess does not include reporting Amazon for manipulating prices, but <laughs> uh, that's another matter altogether, uh, to get in contact with their Chicago office. Uh, the announcement also quoted the antitrust division's Jonathan Cantor. As American consumers increasingly turn to e-commerce, it's critically important to deter, detect, and prosecute crimes that prevent fair and open competition in online marketplaces. These charges demonstrate the antitrust division's continued commitment to prosecuting anti-competitive conduct wherever it may occur. So if you are a whatever you sell, be it clothing media, what tools, whatever it is. The moral of the story is don't collude with your competition to try to fix the price of that so that you all can make more money. That is on its face, uh, anti-competitive behavior and the government is checking on it. Uh, you know, $360,000 in sales for you or me as small time, full-time resellers is a pretty big number in the scheme of things where you got companies selling billions of dollars it's not necessarily so, but this is pretty remarkable that not only are they looking at big things like Amazon's use of its own brand within its own marketplace as potentially anti-competitive, but they're looking at small time, again, relatively small time resellers for things like price fixing. Uh, price gouging. We talked, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, about the situation up in Canada where the government had provided COVID rapid tests at no charge and people were reselling them online and the government up there said they were going to prosecute those people and the fines ranged up to, I think, a quarter of a million dollars depending on the size of the outfit that was doing the selling. The LA Times reports that rapid COVID tests here in the U.S. are reselling for triple the retail price. Uh, high prices for at-home COVID-19 tests are hitting the wallets of U.S. families who need them to get back to school or work. 
if they can find them to buy at all. They note, one restaurant worker in New York said she paid an acquaintance double the retail price in a sidewalk exchange for a test kit. A mom in Missouri said she's rationing her last two-pack in case her kids show serious symptoms. Uh, Another one said they paid $80 that she saw in an online community group. So digital marketplaces like Binax Now kits, which include two tests, are selling for around $75, which is three times what they would cost at at many large retailers. In December, uh, the New York Attorney General Letitia James said that two packs usually priced between fourteen and twenty-five were going for as much as $75, seventy dollars a package, and she warned against price gouging. The danger in healthcare is that for any life-saving product, it's vulnerable to price gouging because most people would pay anything to save the life of a loved one," said an epidemiologist. I'm not going to even try to pronounce the name uh, in a string of tweets about these home test kits. So we talked about this, not necessarily for test kits, but just the idea of price gouging and using, for instance, bots to buy up graphics cards or PlayStations or whatnot, and then resell them at inflated prices and whether or not that was ethical. And I'm kind of of the mind that it's not something that I would do personally, but it's not an item that someone has to have. You don't, as much as you may want a Xbox under the tree at Christmas. It isn't something that you need. When you start talking about health and well-being, however, I think we're crossing an ethical line. I'm all about making as much money as I can on the items that I source and flip. But for something like this, where a worker may not be able to go back to work until they can provide a negative test result, they've got to have a test. And they obviously, as the article points out, they will pay anything potentially to get that test for us to take advantage of that situation and make two or three times the profit. I think, again, you can let me know in the comments or in the chat what you think of it, but I think that crosses an ethical line. Again, the PlayStation or the hot toy for Christmas, hey, you know, have at it. If you can get them and resell them for double or triple or whatever, more power to you. It's not, it isn't my business model, but I don't see anything inherently unethical about it. In this particular case, however, I think, for my part, this is wrong. Last thing we've got for you, this is more for protection on your side from scammers who would be buying. Beware Google authentication scam that is targeting online sellers. The FBI has described a devious Google authentication scam targeting online sellers. The Oregon Tech Tuesday segment explained how the scheme works. And this is a quick summary. The article originally appeared on payments, P-Y-M-N-T-S dot com. You post your real phone number on an online platform when you list an item for sale. The scammer then contacts you via text or email and says in order to make sure you are legit and so that he does not get scammed, he will send you an authentication code from Google to confirm that you are a real person and not a bot. You receive the authentication code in the form of a voice call or a text message and provide the number to him. The scammer then uses that authentication code to set up a Google Voice account in your name using your real phone number for verification. Once that's set up, he can use that Google Voice account to conduct any number of scams against other victims that won't come back directly to him. They're going to come back on you. Google Voice is a free service that lets you set up a phone number that can be used to make phone calls and send texts. The FBI said scammers can also use that authentication code. People provide them to gain access to and take over victims' Gmail accounts. They provide some tips to avoid these scams. Never share a Google verification code with others. Only deal with buyers, sellers, and... uh, they say fluffy finders <laughs> uh, in person. If the money is to exchange hands, make sure you are using legitimate payment processors. There are a ton of scams out there right now using cash app as well. So be, be aware of that. Don't give out your email address to buyers or sellers conducting business via phone. Don't let someone rush you into a sale. If they're pressuring you to respond, they're likely trying to manipulate you into acting without thinking If you believe you are the victim of an online scam, report it to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center at www.ic3.gov or call your local FBI office. So scammers on both sides, (laughs) Uh, buyers and sellers. Man, it is just 
It is a rough, rough world out there. Uh, Van Jim made it to a live. Thank you for stopping by. I appreciate it. Like I said yesterday on Instagram, I've missed you commenting on these shows. So with that, that's about going to wrap it up for today. Like I said, I don't have a what sold segment and this was a really, really lengthy news segment. So thank you again to everyone who listens. Uh, We've got a bunch of new subscribers over the last week over on the YouTube channel. So welcome and thank you to all of you as well. If you found anything in today's video particularly helpful or valuable, please do me a favor and smack that thumbs up button. And if you are not currently a subscriber to the YouTube channel or a follower of the podcast, please consider doing that as well. They say you should do this at the beginning of the show and I always do it at the end. So I'm probably not maximizing (laughs) uh, my like and subscribe potential on this. But nonetheless, uh, if you could do that for me, I would really appreciate it. We'll go back. Josie says goodbye and thank you for visiting the show and the podcast today. I appreciate you all stopping by. Go into the comments one last time here. Uh, TRB Collectibles, thank you, Ryan and Josie. You are absolutely welcome. Thank you for stopping by. We will be back next Wednesday with another reselling news update. Until then, it is time to sell. Thanks, guys. You have been listening to the Galaxy CDs Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you again next time.